How do you encourage someone from afar? What do you do when someone you care about is in need, some sort of danger, some sort of distress? What do you do when you cannot physically or tangibly do anything to change their circumstances? How do you respond in those situations? In those times, we tend to feel hopeless, helpless. We may feel a great sense of unfulfilled longing to be with them, to be near them, to try to fix the situation. Those kinds of feelings can wear you down. Those feelings can be an even greater source of discouragement for you than the particular situation that your loved one is in. I felt this personally over the past two weeks. Um, my father, who I don't have a great relationship with, but I do have um, just, a, I guess, a semblance of a relationship with, um, had a, a, a terrible accident where he fell and um, ended up in the hospital. He injured, uh, re-injured uh, part of his, his neck, his spinal column. So um, he's on the mend currently, but is still in the hospital. And of course, uh, Pastor Chris just prayed for my mother, um, who also went into the hospital this week uh, with an infection. So, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a tough week. It's been a, been a tough week. Um, we've had many other folks in our congregation deal with similar kinds of issues, so I know that you all understand what that's like. But there are times when we learn of a difficulty that our loved ones are going through and we come face to face with our own limitations, our own inabilities, and that in and of itself can, can weigh us down. So again, how do you respond? Well, I think we find a great example from Paul in the New Testament letter to the church at Philippi. This was a church Paul had grown to love. Though he was separated from them, He had learned of some distressing news concerning them and realized that he was incapable of coming to their aid. He was, in fact, sitting at prison at the time. His example in this case was to pray, to write in order to encourage their faith, and ultimately to commend them to the grace of God. That's essentially what Paul does in this letter. He does what he can do. He commends this dear church to the grace of God. As Pastor Chris mentioned previously, I'm going to begin a new series in the book of Philippians this year. Philippians is one of my favorite letters for a number of reasons, which we'll explore as we go through the text. This first sermon will serve as an introduction to the letter. Hopefully it'll whet your appetite to use it to supplement your own personal devotional reading as you continue reading through 1 Timothy. This morning I'll provide you with a broad overview of the letter. We'll take a look at the background, some major themes, the purpose, and finally we'll Take a look at these introductory verses, verses 1 and 2. Why don't you pray now with me before we begin. Father, thank you again for this day that we have and for the opportunity we have to uh, think about your word, to consider uh, the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Uh, This was a letter written by a person, um, by a man, Paul, who was called as an apostle, written to a church, a group of believers um, in in the city of Philippi. Uh, with whom he, for whom, to whom he had gone to preach the gospel, uh, among whom he lived and served and, and proclaimed uh, your truths to build them up, uh, with whom he developed a, a good relationship, Lord, which we'll talk about, and uh, for whom he had a desire uh, for them to grow. And he's writing this letter um, out of that same, uh, that same desire, Lord. And so help us to understand it, help us to uh, gain wisdom from it, as we go through over the, over the course of the year and uh, in various messages, uh, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen and encourage our hearts to understand more, um, uh, more about your desire for us to be people filled with grace, uh, trusting in your grace, leaning on your grace, um, and all of what we'll learn from the letter to Philippi. Uh, we thank you for it. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would all be be acceptable in your sight. Uh, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Now, by way of background, uh, Paul set out on his second missionary journey. We read 
In Acts chapter 15, in order to visit the believers in the cities they had visited on his first journey with Barnabas, this was the point at which Paul and Barnabas separated as a result of their disagreement over taking John Mark. You may be familiar with that. I read Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we see Paul picking up Timothy on his way. He'd already gone left out with uh, Silas uh, after he separated from Barnabas. And they eventually picked up Luke, the physician, as well. Um, as we read already from Acts chapter 16, Paul received a vision to go to the region of Macedonia. And Philippi was a major city in Macedonia. And so, of course, that was one of their main targets. Paul had the custom of visiting the synagogue first when he entered into a new city, but there does not appear to have been a synagogue in the city. However, he located a place of prayer in the city that seemed to be a place where Jews of the city perhaps would gather for prayer. So Paul and his companions met there, and um, we read that he shared the gospel with them. Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, specifically names Lydia as one of the women who heard, believed, and was baptized along with her family. They apparently frequented this place of prayer, sharing with those who gathered. And again, as we read, they began to be accosted by a a demon-possessed girl. Um, And this demon-possessed girl was crying out, following along with them every time they would go day after day. This is why Paul says he got, the scripture says that Paul got annoyed Um, Because she's following them around day after day, saying this exact same thing. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And yes, of course, that is true. But if someone's walking behind you every single day, yelling out in the streets, it would probably wear on your nerves, too. Um, And so Paul uh, commands the demon to come out. The demon does come out. And um, a little bit of irony here, instead of uh, people um, in the area, even the masters of this slave girl rejoicing that um, uh, she was no longer demon-possessed, of course they got angry because they saw their profits dwindling. Um, Apparently they used her as a soothsayer or um, a medium of some sort, and um, they saw their profits uh, shrinking because this girl was no longer possessed with a demon. So they trumped up some accusations, uh, specifically what the text says. They said that uh, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice, which of course was not true. Um, They were not troublemakers. But just take a moment to think about that, what the, the picture that we're being given of the city. There's not a large Jewish population as evidenced by the lack of synagogue, probably not much thought of Jews during that time either. It was all too easy for these men to take Paul and Silas, to single them out, to trump up these charges, to have them beaten and jailed, which is what happened to them, without even as much as an opportunity to defend themselves. Moreover, these men could have been happy for this poor demon-possessed girl to have been rid of, again, this oppressive spirit, but they weren't. And this is the way of the world. What is good is spoken of as evil, and what is evil is spoken of as good. That was the climate in Philippi at Paul's time. Well, we know what happened next. Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. They prayed and sang hymns. Think about that. Being thrown into prison after being beaten. You're put in stocks. What are you going to do? Right? Paul and Silas felt that the best use of their time was praying and singing hymns. They're praying, they're singing hymns, all of the people around them, the other prisoners are listening along, and suddenly there's an earthquake, and supernaturally all the prisoners are released. Not only are the doors busted wide open, but all their chains fall apart. And yet they all remained in prison, which is curious. My guess is either they were afraid of all what happened, or... More likely, they were compelled by Paul and uh, the faith of Paul and Silas. And, of course, we see that miraculous um, conversion of the jailer as he realizes what happened. Well, the magistrates released them again, of course, but not before realizing that they were Roman citizens and it was actually illegal to beat a Roman citizen to condemn them without giving them a proper trial first. 
So they were really in trouble at that point. Um, if Paul had uh, appealed that any further, that's why they came to uh, apologize for Paul and his companions. Um, Paul visited with Lydia and the others who had become believers once again and then left the city. And the next time we see Paul interacting with this church is by means of this letter, years after the first encounter perhaps, and while he was sitting in prison. Which kind of leads you to wonder why. Why does this church become so dear to him? It seems like he had nothing but trouble. Uh, yes, of course, he preached the gospel to some. Some were dramatically saved. I mean, you know, we hear Lydia story specifically called out. We see the Philippian jailer and how he was converted. But that's all we really see in terms of his interaction with them. So how is it that this relationship between Paul and this church developed? Well, as you read through the letter, you realize there's a lot more than that for them. There are a lot more interactions we just don't see. There are a whole host of other themes as you read through the letter. One that is front and center is the idea of partnership in the gospel. Some have often characterized the letter of Philippians in that way. It's a, it's a letter that, that helps us to understand what partnership in the gospel looks like. In chapter 1, verse 5, he specifically calls out their partnership in the gospel. The word for partnership is the same word that we often translate as fellowship or koinonia. You've probably heard that word said before. Having things in common, sharing things in common. In other words, the believers at Philippi partnered with Paul in his ministry of the gospel. They shared the burden in some way, and this made them very dear to him. They didn't just say, oh, there is Paul doing his thing as a gospel minister. Yes, Paul helped us to help to share the gospel with us. Now he's moved on. No, they kept track of Paul. They kept track of his progress. They communicated with him in whatever ways they could. They found out what his needs were, and they sought to meet those needs. Now, remember, this wasn't the 21st century. They didn't have text messages or email, right? They didn't have TikTok. They didn't have Instagram. They couldn't, Paul wasn't updating his status every day to let them know what was going on. They didn't have cell phones. There wasn't even a local payphone they could go to. Much of the, the, the communication was long distance and depended on written letter. Someone had to physically carry the letter between cities when it was being sent from one person to another over long distances. So it took time. It took effort. It took energy to keep up communication with someone long distance. What we see that means that this church took an interest in Paul beyond initial curiosity, beyond a casual prayer. They put effort and money where their mouths were. He mentions in chapter 4, verse 16, At Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. And of course, this particular letter was prompted by a visit from Epaphroditus who had come to deliver another gift that they were sending at that point. They had met Paul. They heard the value of his words. The Lord gave them faith to believe in the gospel through him, and they saw the value of gospel ministry. Thus, they supported him, and they kept supporting him. They gave not based on their own ability, but, what, but based on what they perceived to be his need. They wanted to support Paul in the gospel ministry that Christ had given him, having seen the fruit of it in their own lives. And this fact alone touched Paul. This love, this devotion, this fellowship, this koinonia, this participation in gospel ministry endeared them to Paul. I say that they gave not according to their own ability because Paul makes a point of identifying this in writing to the church at Corinth. He references the churches of Macedonia, of which Philippi is a leading city, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. There he says, we wish to make known to you, writing to the church at Corinth, about the churches in Macedonia. We make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in support of the saints." In other words, these were not rich people. Again, they were already on the fringes of society, both the Jews who believed as well as the Gentiles who, who would become believers in Christ. They would have been on the fringes of society there in Philippi. They didn't have much, but of what they had, they gave and they gave generously. 
And not only to his ministry, but according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that they gave to support Paul, but they also gave to support the churches in Jerusalem, who were probably much poorer and much worse off than they were. And Paul encourages them at the end of the letter, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. Paul encouraging them, again commending them to the grace of God. The riches of his glory in Christ Jesus is a reference to God's grace. God provides, he provides by his grace, he provides both for our spiritual needs as well as our physical needs. This is not name it, claim it, prosperity theology. This is our gracious heavenly father providing for our basic needs committing to do that for us in Christ. And of course, that doesn't mean that we'll always have it perfect. Again, these believers gave out of their poverty. They were not rich people. But Paul says, though you're struggling in your poverty, you gave. And I know with certainty that my God will continue to supply your needs. Just keep trusting him for that. Well, in terms of themes in the book, one of the most recognizable themes is that of joy. And this is perhaps one of the most striking. If you read commentaries and books about Philippians, most of them would generally characterize it as a book about joy. It is true that joy is referenced some, in some form, some 16 times in the book. Joy is on Paul's mind. But the reality is that his mind is on joy precisely because joy is a part of the grace that God gives to us. He gives us joy, among other things, as part of his grace, the grace that he pours out on us in Christ. The Lord wants for his people to be joyful. We're commanded to rejoice in the Lord because he is worthy of it. Psalm 32, verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 40, verse 16, let all who seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let those who love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Of course, in our book, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is a command. Christ came for us and taught us that we might have joy. Thinking back to John chapter 15. Jesus said there, just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus wants to give us of his joy, the indestructible joy of the Savior. Moreover, God has provided his Holy Spirit in order that we might be joy-filled people. We know from Galatians chapter 5 that part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If there's one thing we can learn from the book of Philippians is that we can still have joy in the Lord regardless of our circumstances. That's a large part of Paul's point as he's writing to this church. He knows that they're suffering. He knows they're going through difficulty. He knows that he can't be there to fix it. So he wants to encourage them that they can still rejoice in the Lord. Again, they were poor. They were suffering persecution. He mentions their opponents in chapter 1, verse 28. This is proof that the persecution that he and Silas encountered continued long after he left. He says that to them, to this group of believers in Philippi, It has been granted for the sake of Christ not only to believe, but also to suffer. He says, having the same conflict that I now have. And that conflict he spoke of in chapter 1 was the desire to depart and to be with Christ. He said, because that's far far better. In chapter 4, we see that not only do they struggle with persecution, they struggle with their poverty, but they also struggle with unity. Both in chapter 2, really, and in chapter 4, he mentions, he encourages them to be unified. Chapter 2, be of the same mind, having the same love and full accord of one mind. In chapter 4, he calls out two ladies in particular and asks them to agree in the Lord. There were some issues that they were dealing with that were causing disunity among the body. And Paul wanted to write to encourage them to be unified. And again, Paul says in chapter 4, which I already mentioned, to rejoice in the Lord always. 
Can we always rejoice in the Lord? When you're suffering persecution? Yes, always. When you're struggling with poverty? Yes, always. When a loved one is sick and hospitalized? Yes, always. When you are sick, hurting, or in danger? Yes, always. You can always rejoice in the Lord. Remember, again, Paul was sitting in prison when he wrote this letter. He's sitting in prison. We're not exactly sure which imprisonment it was, but it doesn't really matter. He was in prison, but all he could think about was his dear group of believers who loved and cared for him. He was in prison thinking about the ministry that was the very reason for him being in prison to begin with, the gospel ministry. He was in prison, uncomfortable, unjustly sentenced for the cause of Christ, and yet in spite of all that, he found a reason to rejoice. When you think about the command to rejoice, I think that that is a large part of what the Bible is discussing here. God in his word does not expect for us to put on a smiling face when we're hurting. He knows that we hurt. He's not expecting for us to say praise the Lord and hallelujah when we're down in the dumps. He does not expect for us to rejoice that we have pain. But we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. That means that we consider the Lord. We think on the Lord. We think on who he is. We consider him. We think on who he is. We acknowledge his character, his person, that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, and that that will never change. And because that will never change, we can always rejoice in that truth. We rejoice in him. We think on who he is, but we also think on what the Lord has done. We think on what he is doing, how he is at work. Sometimes we can't see how he's working in our lives in the moment in particular, but we know that God is still at work in the world. That is still true. That is always going to be true. And how do we know that? Because just look around at yourselves. We're all sitting here today as evidence that God is working because he's still building his church. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls the church his workmanship. That's a, the word that Paul uses there is a word from which we derive the English word poem. The church is his workmanship, his poem, conceived of, crafted, and delivered to the world to display his brilliance and glory. And we are a part of that. No matter what happens in this life, we're a part of that. And if that doesn't bring you joy, I don't know what will. That can never be taken from you, beloved. We rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in his work. We rejoice in the supportive relationships that we have within the church with others. That's what Paul does in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. He also mentions Epaphroditus, who is his fellow worker, who was sent from the church to deliver this gift. He talks about Timothy, who served with him as a son in the ministry. Paul says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And you get that? Paul is able to rejoice in the midst of his circumstances precisely because of the fellowship that he has with this dear church and the gospel ministry that he's been given. He's able to rejoice in spite of his circumstances because of the fellowship that he has in the gospel ministry. He knew that Christian life was not lived on an island. It was not lived in a vacuum. Life cannot be lived that way. Gospel ministry cannot be lived that way. I wonder, do you see your relationships with other believers in this way? Do you rejoice in the Lord over your relationships, the support of the fellowship that you have in the Lord and his church? Do you avail yourselves of those relationships? It seems that often when people are in distress, they tend to withdraw, to retract, to hide themselves, to separate themselves from others. Paul says, no, that's not the way. The thing that brings me great joy, one of the things that helps my heart to rejoice the most in the midst of my distress is the fact that I have you, dear people, to call my friends, to call my brothers and sisters. And I can attest to that. I was so looking forward to being together with you all this week, today. And I'm grateful to see you all. We also rejoice 
not only in the partnerships that we have, but also in the preaching of the gospel. We can rejoice that the good news is going forth. That people are hearing of the righteous life of Christ, his substitutionary death, the resurrection of Christ. That people are hearing that their sins can be forgiven. That they are afforded eternal life as a result of the death of Christ. The wrath of God has been satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. Again, we sang earlier, before the throne of God, I have a strong, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That is a part of the truth of the gospel message that we proclaim, that you don't have to face the judgment of God alone, that God has appointed an advocate, that he has appointed a lawyer on your behalf, A high priest who offers not the blood of a bull or a goat, but his own blood, his blood which is precious, which is eternally valuable because he is Jesus Christ the righteous. He shed his blood unto death for you so that as you put your faith in him, he becomes your advocate before the Father. He pleads on your behalf. God looks upon this world, and he will look upon this world. There is a day fixed for judgment. He will look upon this world in judgment. And you will either stand there and try to plead your own case, which you will fail, or Jesus will plead your case for you. That message, that truth is going forward, and we can always rejoice in that. That's Paul's point as he goes further in chapter 1, verse 18. He said that some, having heard of his imprisonment, are preaching the gospel more boldly. Some from selfish ambition, others sincerely. But he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Again, sitting in prison, what is he thinking about? The gospel is still going forward. Jesus is still being uplifted. People are still being saved. Do you rejoice knowing that even if your circumstances are dire, even if you are suffering, that God is at work through the preaching of the gospel? Souls are being saved from eternal judgment. The church is being built. Christ is being glorified. His name is being lifted high. Do you rejoice in that truth? The word of God goes forth Lord's Day after Lord's Day in pulpits everywhere, in house churches, underground churches, jungle churches. The word of God goes forth. The church is built up. The gospel itself goes forth. Lives are changed. The number of the church grows daily as the Lord adds to his people. Listen, as of 1231, December 31st, 2021, the International Mission Board had some 3,593 people employed in the business of proclaiming the gospel around the world. There are 247 people groups and urban centers engaged by the International Mission Board. 18,380 new churches formed. 144,322 new believers. That's not baptisms. That's new believers. New professions of faith in Christ. That is a part of the work that we support as a church. When we give in participation with the Southern Baptist Convention and support the International Mission Board, That is a part of the work that you are involved in. That's a part of the work that you should be praying for. God is at work building his church. Lives are being saved. And that's not dependent on the difficulties that you're going through. That's still happening because God is at work. Even in the midst of our pain, whatever pain in life that we endure, the gospel continues to go forward. And in this we can and should rejoice. But when we rejoice in the Lord, we rejoice in his work. Again, in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul reminds us that we can rejoice that our knowledge of Christ is not stagnant, but that it will continue to increase and abound as we pursue him, ultimately culminating in our call to heaven. And really, that's our great hope, right? That Christ has not left us alone. Paul says at the end of that chapter, chapter 3, that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Pardon me. Our citizenship is in heaven and we're eagerly waiting for our Savior. Jesus didn't just come and then leave us. He didn't come and then go and leave us to fend for ourselves. He said, I'm coming back for you. That's our hope, beloved. 
as we go through the difficulties that we go through in life, us coming to know the Lord by faith is not the end. We get to know him in increasing ways from glory to glory. As we continue to pursue him in this life, we'll get to know him in increasing ways. Our, our faith in him will grow and expand. Our trust in him will grow and expand. The joy that we experience through our relationship with him will grow and expand. And then it'll grow to that point that we're called up to glory. And that's our ultimate hope. When Jesus returns for us, when he returns for our loved ones who are weak and suffering, who have died in him, we know that our fate will all be the same. These weak, frail, wounded, sometimes broken bodies will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, all the suffering that we endured will be completely reversed and we will enjoy new, heavenly, indestructible bodies. Never to suffer, never to become ill, never to feel pain, never to shed a tear. Never to die again. That is his promise. And no matter what happens in this life, that's going to be true. That is his promise to you, believer. And in this we can and should rejoice. Well, again, we've reviewed the background. We've looked at some major themes. The purpose of this letter is fairly straightforward. Again, Paul is writing in response to their support through Epaphroditus to thank them for the support to let them know that Epaphroditus is doing well. Apparently he was sick, and the church learned about that, so Paul wanted to encourage them. Again, this is an actual letter that was written, so it does have some personal notes. He's also um, letting them know how he's doing and letting them know that Timothy is going to visit um, on his way. And in, in spite of the fact that Paul cannot come, Timothy's going to be coming to the church. <clears throat> I can give you a brief outline of the flow of the book as well. You may not remember this by the time we actually get through each of these passages, but I'll just kind of give you an overview as you look at the first couple of verses in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is Paul's introductory greeting. Then we see Paul praying in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Paul reporting in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Paul exhorting. In chapter 1, verses 27 through 218, so that's a good section. Paul's praising, um, praising a, a number of his uh, companions, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. A second round of Paul's exhorting in chapter 3, going through verse 19 of chapter 4, and then finally Paul's concluding greetings in chapter 4, verses 20 through 23. Now, with all of that said, and yes, that was all introduction. Again, this is an introduction to the whole letter. And I believe the main point of this letter, again, is to commend this dear group of believers to the grace of God, to remind them of the grace of God, to point them to the grace of God, to encourage them to avail themselves of the grace of God that he has provided for his church. Let's take a look in the remaining time at these first two verses. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, we cannot forget that we're looking, what we're looking at here is an actual letter. This was a letter that was crafted by Paul, written to the church. It was hand-delivered to the believers at Philippi. My guess it was delivered either by Timothy or Epaphroditus or both. The goal was for Paul to respond to their gift, Epaphroditus' report, to let him know and also to let them know how he was doing. Paul uses a customary structure for this greeting. He indicates who the letter is from, who the letter is to, and then gives a formal greeting. Our letters tend to be a little different. We tend to um, indicate who the letter is going to. We have our greeting in the body of the letter, and then we talk about who it's from at the end. We kind of append that to the end structure of the letters were written a little differently in their day, <clears throat> but it is still a letter. <clears throat> Interestingly, in this introduction, Paul introduces Timothy along with himself. Timothy's likely the one who scribed it for him. What's so interesting about this is that Paul refers to both himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Paul often referred to himself as a servant, in this way. Rarely, if ever, does he use that word to describe someone else. However, the reason why he does should be apparent. 
I already mentioned how he feels about Timothy. He refers to Timothy's proven worth in the gospel, how Timothy served with him as a son serves with his father in the gospel ministry. Paul said, I have no one like him, as he refers to Timothy in this letter. And Paul served with a number of outstanding ministers, right? He served with Barnabas. He served with Silas. He served with Titus. Eventually, John Mark is also restored in Paul's eyes. He served with another, a number of good, sound brothers. Yet he only says this of Timothy. I have no one like him who served with me. And that is significant. And of course, he's sending Timothy along to strengthen and encourage this dear church. So he wants to encourage them to think of Timothy and receive Timothy in the same way that they would receive Paul himself. I think we all understand on some level that we should make no distinctions between our servant leaders, but sometimes we still do. And maybe that's a little bit of that is natural. If there is someone who has a greater deal of contact with the church, a greater deal of influence as a result of their position, they've been with the church longer, they know a majority of the people, they've proven their effectiveness, it's easy to look at that person as the only one or perhaps the primary one of value who can get things done and to kind of feel shorted when that person's gone and the other guy is there, right? Um, But we have to guard against that. Disregarding, for example, one deacon in favor of another who has served longer may cause you to miss the skill and wisdom of that other brother who may not have been serving as long but is gifted in a different way. Same goes for elders. That's why they're a plurality. That's why we have multiple deacons. That's why we have multiple elders because they have different skill sets. God has gifted them in different ways. God has brought them through life in different ways. And the the sum total of their skill and how God is using them is what benefits the church. It's not for any one person. Because we tend to miss out on what God has given. I think that's what Paul is doing here in calling out Timothy and referring to Timothy also as a servant of Christ. He's saying, you don't need me to be present to have a servant of the Lord in your midst. Timothy has proven value. Paul says, I can vouch for that, so you should receive him in the same way that you receive me. Well, again, he calls them servants of Christ Jesus. This harkens back to the words of the servant girl from whom Paul cast the demon in Acts. We discussed that earlier also. She called them servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. The word translated servant here in our text is not the same as the familiar word for deacon. This one is another term that's translated often as bondservant. Bondservants were those who lived in the home of their master, perhaps, and worked for them. They may have received a wage for their work. It wasn't like the kind of slavery that we had in American history. This was a more robust, more well-organized kind of slavery. Think of it more as a lower-class workforce, significantly lower-class because it was still slavery. They were still considered slaves. They were not free to do whatever they wanted. They did have a master. They were given a job to do. They were required to perform a particular task. They were often required for a certain length of time or unless they were able to purchase their own freedom to perform this task. So when Paul refers to themselves, himself, and to Timothy as bondservants, he's acknowledging the same thing for himself. He's saying essentially that they are owned by Jesus Christ. They belong to Jesus Christ. They have a task given by Christ that they must complete because they are his servants and he is their master. I think any believer should gladly take that title of servant of Christ Jesus. I like the way Paul puts it in Acts as he's talking to the, um, the, the leaders in the church at Ephesus. He is leaving them, apparently, uh, according to his... Um, According to what he says in the text, he knows that he won't see them any longer. And so these are kind of his last words to another church who had become very dear to him. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, this is my course. This is the ministry that was given to me. This is the charge that was given to me by my commander-in-chief to preach the gospel of the grace of God, and that's what I'm going to do. And it doesn't matter what happens in my life. Paul says, Jesus is my servant. Jesus is my master. I am his servant. And that's the way he lived his life as he was called. 
And clearly, Jesus is on Paul's mind. He says Christ Jesus three times in just these few short verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the goal. Again, Jesus is his master. Well, again, this letter was written to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. This is the audience whom Paul has in mind, the saints. I like to remind believers whenever I can that the primary way that believers are designated in the New Testament is that of saints. We are called saints. We are holy ones. We are holy ones because we're made holy in Christ. Again, he is our great high priest. He died for us. He shed his blood for us. We are sanctified by him. And so we should think of ourselves as saints. Not as those who are specifically set apart by the the Catholic Church and given holidays named after us. It's not that kind of saint. But rather those who have been made holy in Christ. And why is that significant? Because if you keep thinking of yourself as a sinner alone, you'll wallow in that mindset. You'll struggle with that. The word of God reminds us that though we have no righteousness of our own, we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are sanctified. We are holy. Paul makes this point abundantly clear in Philippians chapter 3. That our faith is a faith based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and him alone, not our own works. Well, this letter was written to them. It was written to those who first heard the gospel, to Lydia, to the jailer who put their faith in Christ, to all who heard the gospel and believed through his ministry. These are all now called saints, and so are we. It's written to the overseers and the deacons. Pastor Chris has been discussing in 1 Timothy the significance of church leadership, of godly leadership, both godly elders and deacons. We discussed last week how godly men who rule well, who oversee well, should be worthy of double honor. That is true. Here at the start of the letter, Paul gives honor to those who are leading. As much as he wanted to honor Timothy as his representative, he also wanted to honor those serving as elders and deacons, as leaders in this church. And so he specifically calls them out. This letter is being written not only to the saints, but also to the leadership, to the elders and the deacons. And again, where is he going with this letter? He says in that next verse, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he makes this point again when you get to the end of Philippians. Paul begins and ends this letter with grace. Again, our verse, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends the book in chapter 4, verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Those two grace commendations serve as bookends for this entire letter. Grace is on his mind, in other words. Paul is commending them to the grace of God. If he had one prayer for them, it would be that they would know the grace of God in all its fullness. Grace to you, he says. May grace be yours. May it be yours in full. May you know the grace of God. I started out asking, what do you do when you cannot physically or tangibly help someone who's hurting, who's struggling? You commend them to the grace of God. And what is better? Grace is often referred to as God's riches at Christ's expense. The word itself means favor. It is the favor of God. In salvific terms, it is his special favor granted only to those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. There's a general grace to all men, but this is his particular kind of grace. Paul says that we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says that the grace of God is our teacher in Titus. I think that's, I believe that's Titus chapter 3. Grace teaches us or trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace teaches us. The grace of God sustains us. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what that was, but the text says that he prayed at least three times that God would remove this thorn, whatever the thorn was, it was distressing him, and he prayed that God would remove it. Now, if if God's going to listen to anybody's prayer, I would think it would be Paul's prayer. But what is God's response to Paul? 
basically, no. <laughs> he says, no, I'm not going to remove it, but my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is perfected in weakness. And so Paul says, you know what? God says he's not going to remove it, so I'm just going to trust in his grace because his grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient for us. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 that there is more grace going to be showed to us. The immeasurable riches of his kindness and grace will be lavished on us in the end. Of course, in Romans chapter 12 and other places, he refers to the gifts of the Spirit as a measure of grace. Grace is manifold. That, that language from 1 Peter, it's multifaceted. It's, it's varied. Grace is the sum total of all of what God does for us in Christ. From the hearing of the gospel by those so equipped by his grace to preach, to believing the gospel itself, to having gifts to share with other believers, even on into glory, the grace of God gives life, sustains life, gifts us to live life well, enables us, and will be our reward in glory. What else would you do? What else would you commend to someone who is in distress? How else would you encourage them? For what else would you pray? May the grace of the Lord be yours in abundance. Grace to you and peace. Again, in this greeting, not only does he commend them to the grace of God, but also to peace. And the reason should be evident. With the disunity problems, the persecution, the poverty, their concern for the workers of the gospel, Paul says, may you also have the peace of God. At the end of the letter, he further commends them. So peace is another one of those kind of bookend themes. He further commends them to the peace of God by encouraging them to be mindful in their thoughts. I won't go too deep into that passage. as I really love the chapter 4 of Philippians, and I commend it every time to someone, anyone who's struggling with anxiety because we will at times be anxious. We will at times have those feelings of anxiety for things that happen in our lives. I've been anxious about many things over the past two weeks. But while we will be anxious at times, we don't have to stay there. When we do stay there, it's often because we're thinking of things that are unknown to us or frightening to us. Paul says instead, instead of thinking on what you don't know, instead first pray. That's what he's going to say in that passage. Give the Lord your anxieties. And second, make sure you're thinking on what is true. And in all of this, he says that the grace of God will be with you. I had to be reminded of that again over this past week in particular and thinking about my mother and praying for her and praying diligently that God would heal her, that God would restore her, that the, the doctors would be able to work quickly. And things don't always work as quickly as we want. And sometimes just, that's just kind of how life goes, right? And it's distressing and it's discouraging at times. But you know what? God's grace is sufficient. And where else are we going to go? You know? I mean, that's what Peter said. Jesus, you know, turns to the disciples, and there are a lot of people who left him because they didn't get what they thought they wanted, what they thought they expected to get from him. They didn't get what they wanted to get from him in the moment, and so they left. And Jesus says, are you going to leave also? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And I say, in the midst of our distress, while the temptation may be to just fall away and to walk away, where else are we going to go? He has the words of eternal life. He has this manifold, multifaceted grace that he offers to us freely in Christ. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else to trust in. There's nothing else to pray. But that the grace of God would be theirs and would be ours in abundance. We sang that song a little earlier, He Will Hold Me Fast. Those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the one who faithfully began the good work in you will complete it, both for you and for your loved ones who are in the Lord? Do you believe that? Do you trust him for that?
This is a beautiful letter. It's a beautiful reminder to us as we care for those whom we love and who are in pain, those whom we cannot tangibly help. We commend them to the grace of God. And that doesn't mean that we will always get the positive answer that we ask for because God is God and we are not. He is sovereign. He is in control. And so part of our trusting in his grace is trusting that he will do the right thing even if we don't understand and even if we don't like it. That's a part of trusting in his grace. Doesn't mean we'll always get that favorable answer, but it does mean that he will always be with us and that his sustaining grace will always uphold us on into glory. God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient for us at all times and all circumstances. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in a proper time. God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. All you need to receive the grace of God is to be needy and to say, God, I need your help. I need your grace. Let's commit to doing that together. Father, we thank you. For this day, we thank you for the reminder of your grace, for the reminder that your grace is at work in our lives presently, that your sustaining grace is at work in our lives and the lives of those, all of those who are in Christ, that your grace, your sustaining grace will uphold us now and until glory. And that we will have even greater grace when we get to glory. Father, I pray, I beg that you would help me and my brothers and sisters to hold fast to that truth. Knowing that you hold fast to us, to all of us. And to rejoice in you and in the work that you're doing. And to commend each of our lives to your grace, for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.